Good evening. Will Biden meet with leaders accused of murdering his opponents to get cheaper oil? A battle over guns in Congress, a recall in San Francisco, and gun detectors for New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, June 3rd, 2022. A U.S. Capitol Police officer arrested a retired NYPD officer today at the Capitol with a fake badge, BB gun, body armor, high-capacity magazines, and other ammunition. According to Capitol Police, Jerome Philippe, who retired from the NYPD in 2018, flashed a fake badge that said Department of the Interpol and made a false statement that he was a criminal investigator with the agency. The arrest happened when the man was approached after he parked his car near Peace Circle on the west side of the Capitol. You might remember on January 6th, there was an uprising at the Capitol that led to hundreds of supporters of former President Trump seizing the building, threatening to, among other things, hang Mike Pence. Meanwhile, the Justice Department said today that Peter Navarro, a former top advisor to ex-President Donald Trump, has been charged with contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the House of Representatives Committee investigating that January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. A federal grand jury charged Navarro with one count involving his refusal to appear for a deposition before the January 6 Select Committee and another for his refusal to produce documents in response to a subpoena. A longtime China hawk, Navarro advised Trump on trade issues and also served on his COVID-19 task force. He has contended previously that his communications are protected by executive privilege, a legal principle protecting a president's communications. Navarro's indictment came a week before the committee is due on June 9th to hold the first in a series of public hearings on its investigation. And it came two days after Navarro filed a civil lawsuit against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the House committee. Trump has urged associates not to cooperate with the Democratic-led investigation, calling it politically motivated. In its subpoena, the committee said it had reason to believe that Navarro had information relevant to its investigation. And in somewhat related news, the trial of a Steve Bannon associate accused of stealing donations from a fund to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, one of President Trump's pet projects, has been thrown into chaos by a juror claiming the case is a government witch hunt and that his fellow jurors are biased New York liberals. Colorado businessman Timothy Shea is on trial in Manhattan Federal Court for his alleged role siphoning money from the We Build the Wall charity, which collected cash from supporters of President Trump's signature policy to combat what he called illegal immigration. The money was supposed to go to a privately funded section of border wall, but prosecutors allege Bannon Shea and others raided the charity. Since deliberations began on Tuesday, notes from the jury have indicated juror number four is questioning why the case is charged in the Southern District of New York. The juror believes, quote, government tried Shea in the Southern District of New York because they knew people here vote differently, should have been tried in a Southern state, read one note sent to Judge Annalisa Torres late on Thursday. Today, President Joe Biden said he was considering a visit to Saudi Arabia as part of a trip to the Middle East. Activists say a visit would betray Biden's values by meeting Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's been accused of rights abuses, including murder, torture and the killing of civilians in the Yemen war. I have been engaged in trying to work with how we can bring more stability and peace in the Middle East. And uh, there is a possibility that I would be going to meet with both the Israelis and the Arab, some Arab countries at the time, including, I expect, would be Saudi Arabia would be included in that if I did go. But I have no direct plans at the moment. We're Is looking. the still a pariah in your eyes? Look. I'm not going to change my view on human rights. But as President of the United States, my job is to bring peace if I can. Peace if I can. 
and that's what I'm going to try to do. Mr. President, will you be open to meeting with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman if you do end up going to Saudi Arabia? Look, we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. What I want to do is see to it that we diminish the likelihood that there's a continuation of this, some of the senseless wars between Israel and the Arab nations. And that's what I'm focused is on. Is OPEC doing enough on oil production? Abdullah Aloda, a Saudi academic who is also the son of jailed Islamic scholar Salman al-Wada, tweeted that he and other Saudi activists felt betrayed by Biden. He said in his tweet, if Biden gives him the U.S. meeting MBS so desperately wants, the bloody handshake will send a clear message to tyrants everywhere. You can always count on America to betray its values and reward bad behavior. Peace activist Kathy Kelly tells WBI she agrees a meeting with MBS would be a tragedy. From the perspective of Yemeni children who have suffered so much starvation and disease at the hands of Saudi Arabia's constant bludgeoning bombing campaigns for President Biden to go and shake hands with Mohammed bin Salman, who ought to be in front of a court and being judged as a war criminal for what he has done over these last seven approaching eight years of warfare against Yemen, and of course his murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and of course the many ways in which he has practiced repression against people in his own country. How dare President Biden campaign on the lie that he truly regarded Mohammed bin Salman as a pariah, and then for the sake of oil, decide that he now can go and shake his hand. I hope he hears so much pushback from the grassroots movement, which is very solidly against Mohammed bin Salman and the dictatorial practices he has uh, imposed on so many innocent people. I hope people will push back and demand that President Biden get some spine and conscience. The uh, Khashoggi murder, going there under those circumstances, what, you know, describe what happened and why that would be so unusual. Well, the idea that a, an embassy was pulled into using their quarters as a place in which somebody would be uh, brutally, I think, tortured and then murdered even though it didn't take them very long. And then the body chopped into small pieces and buried, and that this was such an, an orchestrated uh, campaign of murder and assassination requiring people to travel, get passports, enter uh, the scene of the crime. You know, I think people were appalled. And yet, you know, when you think about how cavalier Mohammed bin Salman had been about the murders of people in Yemen, including school children on their school bus. I mean, there are so many instances of outright cruel elimination of human beings. And so um, I think, you know, the whole world was ready to say, you know, look, we're sort of embarrassed that we ever rolled out the red carpet for this fellow when he visited before, but it's not going to happen again. But, you know, I think a lot of times cruel and ruthless and brutal dictators think, you know, just give it time. We can wait it out, especially if they're rich. And Mohammed bin Salman is that. Do you see a certain hypocrisy there of considering the statements about uh, Putin and the invasion of Ukraine and what you just described? Mohammed bin Salman has been looking upon Yemen is his backyard, is a place that he could certainly take over, and he has so much military superiority and stronger arsenals, and then he found out, well, maybe not. 
And so when the United States says it will never tolerate a brutal dictator moving in and taking away the resources of other people, or that's just utter hypocrisy. The United States has been formed through invasion after invasion of indigenous lands and taking away other people's resources and rights and, and pretty much communicating to the rest of the world. If you don't subordinate yourselves to fulfill our national interests, we can eliminate you. And I think Mohammed bin Salman has taken that cue card and said the same. So it's a time when we have to demand an end to these terrible double standards and certainly seek negotiated settlements, seek ceasefires everywhere in the world. And that would be so much more possible if President Biden would stop being a lackey for Boeing and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. And that's Kathy Kelly, noted peace activist, often heard here on WBAI and other Pacifica stations. In Yemen, a presidential council was formed to present a united front against the Houthi government, fighting Yemen's former government backed by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Since then, Yemen has seen two months of relative quiet since a truce between the country's Saudi-backed internationally recognized government and the Iran-aligned Houthis, and that's the news agency's way of saying it, warring parties began in early April. The truce was renewed for two months yesterday. The devastating seven-year war has fragmented Yemen and presented fertile ground for the proliferation of armed groups and militias. And the United States economy added 390,000 jobs in May, better than expected despite fears of an economic slowdown and with a roaring pace of inflation. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics today. At the same time, the unemployment rate held at 3.6 percent, just above the lowest level since December 1969. President Biden crowed the news earlier today. With today's uh Excellent jobs report and unemployment remaining at near historic lows of 3.6%. I want to speak very about our economy and what we're doing to lower the cost for American families. I know that even with today's good news, a lot of Americans remain anxious, and I understand the feeling. And there's no denying that high prices, particularly around gasoline and food, are a real problem for people. But there's every reason for the American people to feel confident that we'll meet these challenges. Because of the enormous progress we've made on the economy, the Americans can tackle inflation from a position of strength. It's still a problem. We can tackle it from a position of strength. We've laid an economic foundation that's historically strong. And now we're moving forward to a new moment where we can build on that foundation, build a future of stable, steady growth so we can bring down inflation without sacrificing all the historic gains we've made. And that's what we're beginning to see in today's jobs report. With today's numbers, the jobs over the last three months have averaged about 400,000 jobs per month. That's historically robust and a sign we're beginning to shift to steady growth after rapidly recovering 600,000 jobs per month over the prior six months. That's a sign of a healthy economy with steady growth, rising wages for working families, everyday costs easing up, and shrinking the deficit. That stability puts us in a strong position to tackle what is clearly a problem, inflation. And that's the president earlier today. Economists surveyed by Dow Jones have been looking for non-farm payrolls to expand by 328,000 and the employment rate to edge lower to 3.5 percent. May's total represented a pullback from the upwardly revised 436,000 in April and was the lowest monthly gain since April 2021. 
And members of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee have been debating gun law reforms in the wake of shootings, most notably the Uvalde, Texas school shooting. Just as lawmakers on Capitol Hill debated details of a potential bill, another shooting gained national attention. A suspect shot two people during a funeral at a cemetery in Racine, Wisconsin. Thursday night, lawmakers took up a bill aimed at curbing that kind of gun violence. The bill was first introduced into Congress two days ago. It's called the Protecting Our Kids Act and was heard in the House Judiciary Committee. The report of yet another mass shooting in the U.S. so soon after Uvalde in Buffalo and now Tulsa before that led Representative Sheila Jackson Lee to knock an amendment proposed by GOP Representative Matt Gates. That led to an exchange of words between Lee and Republican Representative Chip Roy, who Lee accused of being asleep. The perpetrator here in Uvalde had mountains of social media of murdering women and sexually abusing them and disturbed 18-year-old. Who knows how much more? And by the way, if there had been a waiting period, seven days, he might have not been able to do this dastardly deed. Maybe the grandmother might have been able to raise the issue with police. This provision in this bill on the red flag, this is not a fishing expedition. This is not to be utilized to attack persons, and the court will determine that. This is not a roundup or a lassoing of people. This is not to get in the midst of this heveled and disagreed with lovers. How much more are we going to get that doesn't take guns off the street, doesn't stop three-year-olds from being killed because guns are not stored, or students to be killed because guns are not stored? As our house burns down while Rome burns, I, for one, will not accept it. Let us pass this bill to protect our children. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Gentlelady yields back. Mr. For what purposes, Mr. Roy, seek recognition? Uh, I'll video back, sorry. Uh, to speak on the amendment. Gentleman is recognized. Uh, I think he was sleeping. I don't know. May, let's wake him up. Yield back. Excuse me? Excuse me? You need to turn your camera on. My camera's on. Now it is. Now we see yeah. it. Um, well, the little shot there about sleeping, it's not my rules that allows this kind of crap of a proceeding. And that's what it is. Crap proceeding. When you give us 48 hours notice and we're dealing with stuff that we have planned and we got to figure that out and we have to honor commitments and then figure out flights to come back. And now we're availing ourselves of this crap technology where half the damn committee is voting at night in their pajamas and doing you know, Lord knows what. And then you you want to accuse me of sleeping? Because I don't have my camera on? Give me a break. Let me tell you what this is all about. It's a pretext. This is all pretext. Democrats come in here saying, hey, you know, we don't want to take your guns. And then they say, we want to take your guns. This bill, oh, come on, let's all work together. We're just going to do some soft changes to the laws. You can't disagree with that. But then they admit throughout the entire afternoon what their goal is, to get rid of semi-automatic weapons.
Action from the full House is expected to come as soon as next week, but political observers say the bill could face some steep opposition in the Senate. Democrats and Republicans each control 50 seats, and bills require 60 votes to advance. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The father of a 10-year-old girl slain in the Uvalde, Texas school shooting and a school employee have taken initial steps that could lead to lawsuits against Daniel Defense, the maker of the semi-automatic rifle used in last week's massacre that killed 21 people. Lawyers for Alfred Garza, father of Rob Elementary School student Amari Joe Garza, requested in a letter on Friday to Daniel Defense that the Black Creek, Georgia-based gun manufacturer provide information about its marketing to teens and children. Separately, school employee Amelia Marin filed papers in Texas state court seeking an order to depose Daniel Defense and force the company to turn over documents also related to its marketing. Marin is listed as a speech pathologist clerk on the school's website. Gun manufacturers are shielded from lawsuits by federal law. Nevertheless, the Connecticut Supreme Court in 2019 ruled Remington Arms could be sued by families of the victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings for violating state laws. And New York state lawmakers are sending a package of bills to Governor Kathy Hochul that will expand gun control laws as well as step up oversight of social media platforms in the week of mass in the wake of mass shootings in Buffalo and across the country. The measures were put together in the final weeks of the legislative session and taken together are the most significant changes to New York's gun laws in nearly a generation. Governor Kathy Hochul announced her support for the new laws today. Continue working. I'm going to sign those bills in a matter of days. Make sure that the rest of the nation sees what we do. And as Reverend L has done with his voice, calling out the Republicans in Congress and saying, start going to the funerals of these babies if you have no heart. And then you walk out of there and say, I will not make the changes to protect Americans. We will march together hand in hand and make sure that we change the laws that resulted in an 18-year-old, you know, that go into a store and buy an AR-15, the same kind of gun, bought by another white 18-year-old in Texas that slaughtered a group of children just simply sitting in their classrooms and two brave teachers. So we're saying here in New York, we will lead, but the rest of the states Shame on you if you don't. This is a moment of reckoning. History and ultimately God will judge all of us by how we responded to this crisis to take the guns out of the streets. And lastly, I'll say, this is not just about the shootings that get all the attention and all the reporters go there and there's attention for a couple days until the next one and the next one. There's been 230 mass shootings since this year started. That's more than four people killed a time. I will not take my eyes off the fact that New Yorkers are dying every single day in our streets. It may not be one crazy mass murderer, but they're being slaughtered in their streets, innocent children, people caught in crossfire. And that is why the blood pressure and stress levels of black women are 60% higher than white women, because this is the stress they live with every day. And that's Governor Kathy Hochul speaking earlier today. The new laws will expand the state's red flag law, increasing the list of mental health workers who can flag a person as a potential danger, and bulletproof vests for civilians would be outlawed. The the minimum age of purchasing an assault rifle would be raised from 18 to 21, and the state will get broader powers to demand information from social media platforms of hateful behavior, and a task force will investigate social media companies' role in promoting mass shootings.
And this Saturday, the Reverend Dr. William Barber will be in Newark promoting his June 18th Poor People's Campaign March on Washington. It will also be just 10 days ahead of the city's municipal runoff election on June 14th that will determine the makeup of the Newark City Council. The outcome of these races, in which Mayor Ross Baraka has much invested, could be seen as a reflection on how much progress the engaged electorate feels the incumbent has made on his ambitious agenda he laid out in 2014 when first elected mayor. WBAI labor reporter Robert Henley has more. Just a few weeks off from the June 18th march in Washington, D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign. In Newark, particularly, Dr. King, in 1968, just 11 days before he was killed, came to Newark and was in the process of planning the Poor People's Campaign, the original iteration. The vision of that was to have a multiracial coalition of the people that were on the wrong end of what was then a war-based economy. And Reverend Barber's message is very much the same today, specifically in Newark. We've seen from the rebellion of 1967 to the revitalization of today, a lot of economic development projects have happened. There's been progress in the schools, progress with police accountability. But the reality is that in at least three of the zip codes of the city, Three quarters of the people that live there struggle week to week, either living below the poverty line. What's the message going to be? The idea is that individually people that are low wealth and low wage don't stand a chance. But if they come together in collective action and discipline and focus, they can move the nation. And we've done that before. And this is what's required now. What's changed in Newark since 1967? what you've had is a situation where a concentration of wealth has accelerated. What we saw through the Great Recession were literally thousands of households, particularly African-American households, where a grandparent or a parent owned a home. And because of the predations of Wall Street that went without accountability, those homes were lost. And so what we're seeing now, a report out of Rutgers shows that 50 percent of the single family homes that are being bought in Newark are being bought by Wall Street-style LLCs that come in not to even flip them so that a family can own a home, but so that they can be rented in perpetuity. And we're seeing rents jacked up dramatically. A generation of homeowners are being turned into further notice tenants. One of the things we've seen out of this is that when that begins to happen, voter participation declines. So it should not be lost in anyone that in the last election, Mayor Baraka was elected with 13,000 votes, a little over 13,000 votes, out of 165,000 registered voters. What does that represent to you? What's happened here is a kind of disengagement from politics. It's no accident that Newark and cities like it took the brunt of the pandemic. The data is clear. Excess mortality was felt most directly in these places. And indeed, the lingering effects of COVID going forward are being felt in these places because we are still dealing with the fundamental economic and health disparities that are part of this form of late-stage vulture capitalism. Private equity in Newark, is that something that's been, and we call it private-public partnerships sometimes, things like that? What's happening is that we saw with the American Rescue Plan that when that passed, we bought ourselves some time. But the failure to be able to get Build Back Better forward, what we saw happen in short order was that when we expanded the child tax credit, we saw a huge number of American families with small children come out of poverty. Then they failed to renew it. They dropped back in. And so what's happened is that the same tax policies that Donald Trump had in, in position, which punish working people because they tax labor at a higher rate than idle capital that's sitting offshore. 
And so as a consequence now, we haven't even gotten the money that was passed. I mean, consider, Paul, that there's 5 million households that are entitled to $14 billion in the Treasury right now from the last American Rescue Plan that we have not gotten to these households. WBAI labor reporter Robert Henley. And Chesa Boudin, San Francisco's chief prosecutor elected on an agenda of tackling mass incarceration, is facing a recall election that could have ramifications for criminal justice reform efforts across the United States. A former public defender and son of two weather underground radicals who spent decades in prison, Boudin pledged to undo the harms of racism in the system, hold police accountable for misconduct, and end the criminalization of poverty. After his election in November 2019, he became one of the most prominent leaders in a growing movement to elect progressive prosecutors. But amid escalating anxieties about crime during the pandemic, Boudin has faced intensifying opposition from law enforcement, conservatives, tech investors, and some constituents and elected Democrats in the city. One recall supporter had this to say. About the victims of crime, those who have been suffering and then those who are killed. After an initial recall campaign failed to get enough signatures last summer, a newly formed committee of his opponents called San Franciscans for Public Safety in November succeeded in placing the measure on the June 7th ballot. That's this coming Tuesday. If the recall succeeds, the mayor will appoint his successor. Boudin blames wealthy opponents for the recall. Our DA, Chesser Boudin must not be recalled. They registered the domain for the recall uh, the week I was sworn into office. But as the pandemic wore on and people got more and more upset at the changes in our lives, it was a really easy opportunity for Republican billionaires to fund a movement that, as you said, does have some support from Democrats. Uh, A former prosecutor who says she left the DA's office because of Boudin's policies says the DA has been helping defendants get a better deal. Um, He's continued to be defendant focused. He intervenes in cases in order to make sure that a defendant gets what he believes is the best outcome for them. And as a manager, doesn't want any input from his attorneys. And so I just couldn't function any longer in that type of environment. But Boudin says whatever his opponents say, crime is down in San Francisco. Overall, if you look at the data in San Francisco, crime is down dramatically during my tenure. In fact, during the two and a half years I've been in office, if you compare them with the two and a half years prior to my administration, there have been about 28,000 fewer reported crimes. Violent crime is down by double digits. Property crime is down by double digits. Chesa Boudin, 